I did forget to tell you actually that we, when we were staying close to you, when we had our little break, um, we were on the golf course one day and we saw your cat with a with a mouse. Yes, and that would be the case. Yeah, no, the, that ginger thug of a cat. Yeah, is is all over. He get he's on Facebook posts of people just saying, "I've just seen a cat by this, or just seen a cat by that." Yeah, I don't know, bringing down a muntjac or something and dragging it across a main <laughs> road. It doesn't surprise me you've seen him on a golf course either. Yeah, just trotting. You know how cats suddenly speed up and sort of trot? I guess could be we were kind of disturbing him. Um, but I did have a lot of toddler questions about why did the cat have a mouse? And... Why did the cat have a mouse? <laughs> When is the right time to die? Hello, I'm Nairi. And I'm Phil. We're two friends trying to answer that question. For one of us, it's theoretical. And for the other, that's me, it's all too real. In this series, we'll follow Phil's journey, living with an incurable and life-ending illness, and unpack some of the key debates around assisted dying, with some help from experts and campaigners. I wanted the chance to have this discussion in the UK courts. I never got that chance, but this is my story. And this is my podcast. So, Phil, it's been months and months since we spoke. I think possibly six months. I think the poor old chickens had just met their end when we were last speaking. So, April time. Yeah, thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah. So I suppose as so much time has elapsed, I should probably ask you the same question I'd ask anyone else, which is, how are you? But I guess for you, it's a more poignant question. How, how are you doing? Yeah, you want to ask that question with caution, I guess. Um, because if we, we, we've had a, a hard few months. Um, um, I started getting a bit more care um, in, um, in May, June time, and then had a fall in mid-June um, and broke my hip, which put me in hospital for a good couple of weeks and um, I think you know with the broken hip and deteriorating health I lost a, a lot of mobility and got I think the word is deconditioned whilst in hospital um, and then came out and we've had a tricky summer that's included um, Covid and um, stresses and strains with our children and trying to get to grips with moving into something that's approaching full-time care for me and just trying to kind of understand accept and go ahead through get ourselves through the minefield that is having care and um, everything that goes with that. What do the carers carers do for you day in? What, what kind of level of care are you receiving now? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think what it's what they call, um, it was mentioned last night, actually, this happened a little bit at a time and all at one, then all at once. In April, when we talked about this, I, I was just starting some personal care. Um, I broke my hip in July and um, um, needed to get back out of hospital an intensive package of local authority care and then we've transferred on to um, kind of private caring now through an agency. Last time we talked about the care that you were getting and Becky the carer um, and you were kind of just getting into that I don't know if Becky's still um, involved in your care but it's it's more of an operation now isn't it? She is yeah but Becky's now one of about five carers who I see very regularly, and I mean that kind of on a um, every other day basis. There's Becky and Carla and Sabrina and Helga. Uh, there's four of them. I mean that makes me sound like I'm I'm living in the Playboy Mansion, 
but it's, it's not quite that. And we are, um, you know, kind of a, a team. They are a team um, who are partly de- dedicated to keep me running, for better or for worse, and to help me manage my way through a final decline and the last bit. They sound. I was thinking less Playboy Mansion and more like a girl band. Okay, that's better. Yeah, more Spice Girls. Yeah, it's it's or S Club Seven. The I I don't know. I, it's it's not. Um, uh, it's been a really difficult thing. I think I'm still a little bit post traumatic, having you know um, being what I now perceive as being relatively well. Slipped in the bathroom, broke my hip. You know, twelve hours later, I'm, I'm in hospital, and thirty six hours later. I'm having a, um, a hip operation, and that's when all dignity was kind of stripped away, um, very brutally and very quickly, and it's never quite returned. So this didn't really go gradually; it went a little bit, and then all at once. Um, and now I'm in a position of yeah, where my my kind of body is no longer my own. When I go to bed at night, I have a tube plugged in at one end and a tube plugged in at the other end, and um, yeah, and then you know the nights which are very long kind of move between sleeping pills and morphine and stuff like that just to get me through um and uh yeah there's this amazingly there's someone in our house kind of a lot a lot of the time keeping an eye on the equipment i imagine it's a really difficult place to be because on the one hand and you can hear this you're so so grateful that they do that job that's that's needed but it must be it's strangers in your space is in your home in your it must be really hard to juggle your feelings on that it is yeah and then you know we've got really kind uh delightful and caring people you know people who care for because they want to not because they're well paid uh, because it's a vocation um and we get along really well um but we are everything charlotte and i and do is to a schedule um you know every day it has to be mapped out with half an hour slots for this and that you know whenever I go to the toilet has to be kind of planned into the day um you know I know I know probably when I'm going to be showering for the next you know the next weeks ahead I have tiny decisions that I'm able to make you know I can still use a a bed control just about I can still just about use the joystick on my wheelchair so I can move around the house but, you know, I move around two rooms. I move around our main room and our uh, our bedroom. And that's and that's really that's really it now. Um uh you know, I, I can go two weeks without or at least or perhaps less around that time without going outside. Um and you know, months, weeks without going anywhere other than for you know, being jabbed or boosted or visiting a doctor. And it is difficult um, because we, we live in one, one main room in our house and it's now got much more equipment in it and there's very often a person in in blue sat in the midst of our life, which I think is really difficult for our uh, our children, difficult for, for Charlotte, and we can't do without it. When we try to do without it, we find that the pressure is just too, too great. So that sense of trying to give ourselves a holiday just doesn't really happen. Um, there kind of are no holidays, and there are, I guess there are, there aren't any days off from having a a a nasty disease, and that's that's the honest truth of it. 
What has physically changed for you with your body? Um, um, I, two things really. One, one is um, uh, a smaller amount of mobility. Um, I was in a wheelchair when we were speaking, but I was in that wheelchair, um, let's say, um, 20% of the day or whenever I left the house. Um, and now I'm in that wheelchair maybe 90% of the day, um, all day, in, in all situations. Um, and uh, so there's a real physical change in my upper body as well, um, what I can and can't do. But I guess the really fundamental stuff is um, why the swallow now as well is a, a, a gradual and, and uh, non-stop deterioration in my lungs. So they've been losing a little bit of capacity kind of every month for the last 12 months. And now it's got to the stage where where talking and, and um, breathing are becoming hard or breathing is becoming hard and therefore talking is becoming um, a, a labour. And that's really different because you, I mean, you sound, you sound different. Yeah, um, I, you know, and I don't think it's really kind of noticed um, by those around me because it, everything moves gradually. But, you know, I'm kind of talking with the last um, bits of my breath um, all the time and, and sort of metaphorically as well. And um, yeah, and the, the stuff going on with the lungs is, is really frightening and it's really unpleasant. Um, in preparation for this, I used to do breathing exercises I've done for sort of years, being told that my lungs are going to get it. And there is a breathing exercise where you breathe in and out and then breathe all the way out and hold with your breath out and do that for 30 seconds and then one minute. And then after that, do that for one minute, 30 seconds. And that is your body screams for breath quite quickly. And this is all about trying to control panic and fear. But I have that kind of feeling all of the time and it's really a fundamental feeling it gets right to, into your brain stem and yeah it's um it's quite hard to deal with because it, it that also ushers in a kind of sense of doom and anxiety and panic um, that I think comes alongside probably all forms of breathlessness. We've used a metaphor before of a point where you might want to get off the bus as it were yeah most certainly I mean I th I thought I was kind of there this summer um, and much of that was lying with a mixture of you know post-operative hip stuff Covid in the house and um, uh, a uh, care arrangements that were at the time just very busy and quite chaotic and I kind of thought that was where I, I wanted the end to come however we got through that stage and I can see I can see another sort of opportunity opening, opening up for a sort of, and I say only sort of, acceptable phase of life where there can be some quality and also where I can, you know, I can still engage and contribute with my family. This is the hard bit, I think, is the, is the, um, the breathing and the talking that comes with the breathing. That, that sounds very final to me. The, the inability to do either of those places me unable to communicate normally and unable to do anything at all because I will be wired to a ventilator and that that is a stage that I look at and I at this moment I cannot see where any of the value comes I can only see the the, the horrors of that so it has been around 
five, six months since we last recorded and you've had the chance to listen back to that. What do you think listening back and hearing that you then speak and and how do you reflect on that now? You know, it's amazing because when I heard it more recently, I was almost nostalgic um, um, for, you know, brighter times because, and also a little bit worried because having listened to it again, it's a bit light and it's a bit, I think, on the edge of being flippant about a really, really serious um, topic that I was moving into. And now um, I'm kind of going through it properly. I was approaching it and I've been thinking about it and I've been slowly declining for years. But having got to the really hard stuff, the stuff that you have to go through and can't go around, um, yeah, I think it was maybe a little bit light. I guess there would be other people listening to this who are at my stage or beyond it. And I wouldn't want to give any sense that a a world of um, disability um, is... um, anything other than often very tricky. I asked you this question last time and I'm interested to see how your answer compares. Are there still moments of lightness and happiness in your world? Yeah, yeah, there are. And um, they are, um, they're still quite common. But I've had to kind of get to the stage where I accept a different plane again, uh, having arrived in a different place and I have to accept a different regime. I'm still tense kind of every every evening when we've had a little bit of family time and I see the clock ticking around to nine, knowing that the carers are going to come. And that's part of a process of almost like suiting me up, getting me ready for bed and ready for the overnight stuff, which seems to go on forever. Um, but before that, we might have watched a bit of TV or, you know, just done things that are normal, might have you know, horrified myself with my eldest daughter watching Squid Game or something like that. And those are sorts of little moments of of sort of normality. And, um, yeah, and and strangely, I've also been able to make very, very tiny bits of progress returning to getting aspects of my old life back. Maybe, you know, learning how to get out of a wheelchair and be dropped into a chair, an armchair, Um, and then, you know, that sort of thing. They they turn out to be big wings um, now in a world before when I would have seen that as kind of small beer. But being able to be moved from one chair to another um, um, and reposition is, is suddenly a, um, a little piece of bliss. I'm currently watching Downton. Have you seen Downton? I feel like you will not have ever seen Downton. No, Downton's not my thing, Ari. I think you know that. <laughs> I'm so enjoying it. I know it's awful. Yeah, but I mean... Intellectually. I know, but you'll be on The Archers as soon as this is over as well, won't you? I love The Archers and I will not hear anything bad said about The Archers. Mm, and that's where you and I will remain different for all time. I mean, you could, have been, you could have used Bridgerton, couldn't you? I've seen that as well, but I thought you'd judge me even more for that. I would have done, absolutely. Bridgerton was chaos. It didn't make any sense at all. It did. It was... I loved it. Oh, God. Now, it's becoming clear that if there's going to be a change in the law on assisted dying, it will come from the world of Westminster, not the courts. 
So we spoke to Sir Vince Cable, former Liberal Democrat leader, about how the debate is playing out in Parliament and about his own journey on supporting the issue in the UK. This issue of assisted dying came up several times. I had several constituents in Twickenham, which is where I was, who um, had um, motor neuron or some other terrible condition of that kind. And they asked for me my help, and I I didn't give it to them actually because um, until quite recently I took the view that the law should stand as it is, and it was probably um, you know I was persuaded of these fairly negative arguments about you know slippery slopes and so on, but it was also partly personal experience. Um, I my, my mother died some years ago. And, you know, like a lot of elderly people, she was being overcome by dementia, but she also had mental illness and depression. So one day she would say, I I just want to die. Can somebody help me do it? And then the next day she'd be full of life. And and this this idea about how you determine in an absolute way uh, that, that, you know, somebody is, has just got to the end of a dignified life and they just want to end it. I couldn't get my head around that problem. Uh, and then uh, my late wife, Olympia, died uh, 20 years ago of uh, cancer. Um, uh, and she didn't want to end her life uh, prematurely. She wanted to live to the very end and be uh, surrounded by her family, which she was, and, and that was her choice. And I'd rather assume that that was the way, you know, most most people wanted to be. So I think the way I approached it was um, rather negative. And when this came up in Parliament, I voted against it. But then I was persuaded by uh, one or two people who I'd encountered um, that actually I'd I needed to open my eyes a bit, that there were people who were completely compassmentous and completely lucid, uh, who did want to die a dignified death. Um, th- there is plenty of ways of introducing proper safeguards. And so when I won the private member's bill uh, two years ago, I was number three in the ballot. I had a very good chance of bringing an, in a new law. Um, I, I chose assisted dying. The, the problem was that uh, Parliament ended early, as you you know, there was an early general election, and so the opportunity to take the legislation through was stopped. What do you um, think it would take uh, for our politicians to pass a new law on assisted dying? And I'm very much thinking about the current crop of um, politicians. I, I think it will happen, but I don't think it's going to happen immediately. Two, three, four, five years, that kind of time frame, I think, is what, what we're talking about. The reason is that there is substantial resistance, and, and I think resistance really comes from two sources. There are those people who believe in you know, the absolute sanctity of life, and they, may, they, may, they probably take a very strong view about anti-abortion, for example, for the same reason, that under no circumstances should human beings terminate life as they define it. And they, they're probably coming from a religious perspective. So there, there is that group, which is very influential, uh, and you know, one has to respect the religious conviction behind it. So there's that group. And then there are the more practical people, uh, and I, I'm, I suppose I came into that camp, who say, well, you know, we can understand why, why 
people want assisted suicide. We think there is a case for it, but we're worried that it could so easily be abused. And it could be abused because of, you know, people with mental conditions not being totally clear about what they want or what they don't want. Uh, It could be abused because there are, you know, greedy relatives who are trying to push their loved ones into agreeing to an assisted suicide because they want to get their hands on property or something of that kind. Um, And and these are the people who say that this is a a kind of so-called slippery slope towards the situation they have in Holland, where a lot of older people are signing up for uh, assisted suicide, and it's become a kind of voluntary euthanasia. Uh, And people say, well, you know, that's terrible. We we don't want to go there. Um, And that's why the the argument in Parliament is about the strength of the safeguards. I think, from my perspective, there's an air of inevitability about this. I think a law is coming forward in um, the states of Jersey this month. um, Ah, And that will, will, um, at least for for discussion, and the, the Scottish Parliament have a bill on the blocks in consultation and you know there might be a little bit of a sad way for this to come about in um, England and Wales and um, Northern Ireland, but it might come about because we look at um, other countries and feel slightly ashamed. Yes, well, Northern Ireland will probably be last, <laughs> but um, might be right there. one of the things that happened when I was trying to get the legislation going was that I got an invite to write for the Daily Mail. I mean, I, it's not my favourite newspaper. Um, but, you know, they represent people who are generally on the older side and who are socially conservative with a small C. Uh, and the fact that that audience was receptive to, you know, what, what I was arguing, I found very encouraging. Yeah. yeah. C- can I ask what, what advice and support you've had from your medical uh, people, your your GP, your you know the other consultants who you've used. I mean, what what position have they taken on all of this? Interestingly, um, Vince, I broke my hip in June, went into hospital, and and was in there for two and a half weeks. And on two or three three occasions in the hospital visit, I had people popping into my room, closing the curtain, and saying um, quietly that they support um, uh, the the campaigning work that we'd done. Mm. But it was always very quiet now. Um, the consultant for MND and the consultant for the lungs which is the worst kind of problem within MND for me um, um, both know my position but it's not a conversation that I can have with them and if we go on again to the palliative care consultant who I met this summer to really kind of set out the ground rules for palliative care which is really around how much am I going to use a ventilator and choose not to use a ventilator Mm. Um, again the discussion was was a little guarded hmm. um, and and uh, you know that that makes me fearful um because of course I've well the royal college of gps as i understand it uh and i think the other royal colleges have become quote neutral in other words they're they're not taking up a political position which in some ways is is quite positive and encouraging because they have this hypocritic um, I don't know how you pronounce it, the Hippocratic Oath, which requires them to sustain life in all circumstances. And the fact that they respect the fact that a lot of medics no longer believe that's appropriate for, for some conditions like yours 
um, is itself positive because it means that the medical profession can't be used as a as evidence for just keeping the status quo. I think you, you are right that well, you know this that the medical profession has moved largely to a position of neutrality, which we when I say we since I've been doing some some work on this saw as the moment where the things would tip. But having listened to the um, House of Lords debate uh, a couple of uh, a few days ago, I don't think that may be the case. Well, the House of Lords probably isn't the best forum for this. I mean, it, so, so this is a sort of boring issue of parliamentary procedure, but, but legislation can come in through the House of Lords, it can come in through the House of Commons. You know, they, 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 they have to clear legislation, that's for sure. But, but members of the House of Lords don't have to respond to public opinion uh, in the way that members of the House of Commons do. Uh, and I think when a, an MP gets an opportunity, as I did, uh, to bring in assisted diet legislation, I think you will find that they're much more switched on and responsive to opinion than those um, people you heard speaking in the Lords. So I think I think the Commons is the best route. It just requires uh, an MP at the beginning of a Parliament to win the ballot. It's, so it's 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 awful for you that that these things depend on a lottery, um, but that's how private members' legislation works. It's conceivable that the government could decide to act on this, but. Um, Governments generally keep clear of issues that have a very strong kind of moral, ethical dimension to them. Just coming back to the question, Vince, about, um, you know, MND being a motor neurone disease being a particularly bad disease, particularly brutal. Could we not split that disease out, maybe one or two like it, and just give us a waiver, keep the blanket ban? Yeah, that that's one way of doing it. Uh, I mean, I think when I discussed with people how to frame the assisted dying bill they they took the view that the best way of carving out cases which um, deserve special treatment were to, to, uh, people who are in the last stages of a terminal condition in other words if a medic could authorize um, sign a document to the effect that uh, this this patient has six months of life and that the next six months are going to be very difficult. Uh, those are the conditions under which um, assisted dying could happen because, you know, motor neuron disease, as you say, is a horrible disease, but cancer can be. Um, my, my wife, uh, my late wife, was in a way fortunate. She had good treatment and the pain was manageable, but but for some people it isn't. So there are different, different um, conditions and I think rather than separating out some conditions from others, um, the, the, the practical way forward, I think, is, is a cutoff point which says that some people are in a kind of final terminal stage of, a, of an illness. That, that's the way the, the, the legislators are currently thinking about it. I mean, that maybe segues into the other area that you mentioned in your introduction, which is about your, your own mother and yes. her you know her you know shifting morale mm. you know you've obviously had a um a switch in opinion so i just wondered if you could just tease it into that a little bit i think my mother's situation which is true of very many very old people now is that their 
um, their mental faculties are waning because they have onset dementia. Uh, and they on, on top of that, they may have a mental condition which is very volatile and, and they are highly depressed on some occasions, but very um, positive about life in others. And it's the combination of people's diminishing capacity to make rational decisions and their erratic decision-making that worries the people who talk about slippery slopes. Uh, and that's why the safeguards are very important. And, and certainly assisted dying shouldn't be used for you know people who have dementia, for example. That, that would be wholly inappropriate and uh, it would mix up the, the cases like yours in, in a very unsatisfactory way. But one, we have to have some protection for older people that then, you know, the state isn't going to legislate to get rid of them. I mean, I think a lot of old people are terrified that, that this could happen. Um, and there has to be, there has to be protection. And people have to feel they're protected. One of the reasons I ultimately changed my view on all this is that we were worrying so much about possible isolated cases of abuse that the greater injustice to people like yourself was being perpetrated and that mustn't be allowed to happen. We've got to get a proper balance here. Yeah, and there are, um, I, I believe there are hundreds of people like me um, at any one time in this country who reach a point of desperation mm. and often take things into their own hands thank you very much for joining in um, on this program and being illuminating and lucid well thank you phil uh, it's been a marvelous experience talking to you and uh, the, the, the clarity of the way that you've approached this uh, awful dilemma is it just leaves me speechless with admiration so uh, all power to you and with that campaign and i do hope it's successful Thank you. I am, I am now going to put my head in the oven. <laughs> well, uh, no comment on that. Like a politician, that's my stock response to dilemmas of that kind. So, Phil, it's been a couple of weeks since your conversation with um, Vince Cable, Lord Vince Cable. I think he said we didn't have to call him Lord, though. He's not a lord, is he? You know, sir. He's a sir. He's a sir. He's a sir. Yeah. sir Vince Cable. Yeah. Your, your joke at the end, it, it couldn't have fallen more flatly if you tried, and I loved you for it. <laughs> <laughs> he laughed. He did. He didn't know I hear him. He, he, he laughed. It was so... There was like a pause, and then while he sort of comprehended and was clearly like, is this is this guy for real? And then he did laugh, but it was a really awkward laugh, which I was, I'm here for that. I think he said right at the end, I don't know if um, it'll make the cut, but I think he said he was quite nervous, which is is interesting that he was the one who was nervous. Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? If we're saying Vince is right and nothing's going to change immediately, where does that leave you? Do you think a listener would be thinking, what does that mean for Phil? In all honesty, I didn't expect things to change uh, quickly anyway. I don't know why. I was kind of hopeful that um, the, um, something might happen at a speed. I'm guessing if anything has to, anything does change, there's going to be all the laborious stuff that goes with it of getting a law through Parliament, of 
some kind of ramping up and period, some implementation period, whatever they call it, you know, some some testing or piloting. I don't, I don't know how, you know, how these things sort of happen. Mm. And um, I, I can't imagine this being of particular use to me at all. I mean, if I don't, I don't imagine that a bit. I wasn't, I was hoping that I might hear something from uh, Vince Cable that would, um, uh, uh, that would make me, make me think otherwise. But if anything, it was the opposite. He he said he was um, uh, counselling that this will go slowly. It might take um, the the situation whereby the law changes in Scotland and Jersey and the Isle of Man and perhaps next door in in Ireland in Ira, and um, and we are somehow kind of shamed into this, um, embarrassed into changing our law, or um, that the admin becomes impossible because. If you live on the border near Scotland and you can pop over and have an assisted death, but you can't a mile away or next door, then the the law becomes unenforceable, unmanageable. And that maybe is the way it will change. And it will be a sad thing to take such an important moral and ethical issue and and kind of run it into the weeds and change just because um, the the admin got complex. Was there anything that surprised you about what Vince Cable was saying? There was there were a couple of things. There's one thing that kind of troubled me, which was about, and then we are getting into the um, the real nitty gritty of assisted dying, and perhaps into spaces that most people wouldn't want to or need to think into. But there was one about his his mother and the experience of his mother having got poorly, um, and that. Um, she would flip-flop from saying, you know, please get me out of this, let me die, help me to die. And then after that, she would come back and say, no, life is okay. And I, that, that's something I think people at the end of, end of their lives in pain uh, will probably experience, may, may uh, you know, there must be a common experience. So it's back to that question, when is the right time? Um, I guess as the law is being looked at at the moment, um, they're saying, well, you could only have this right in your last six months. So the the problem might be, is someone going to go a number of weeks earlier than they might um, and regret it? And how important is that? I personally think if someone really reaches a point where they they sort of just have no value in life over a sustained period of time, then then they will know. And they know they're terminally ill, and they know they've got very little time. Then you know that that's probably the point to pull the plug, whether you're depressed or not. I did think it was you know he comes from a position of understanding these things really well, and just the 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 slowness of change, and I understand why it needs to be that pace because it's important to get it right and look at the detail. But it's just like turning an oil tanker, isn't it? And he painted that really clearly for me for the first time because I think your drive and your um, clarity and your focus brings a lot of energy to things and I think that just isn't how that isn't how politicians work it isn't how the system works is it it's slow it's heavy it takes ages um, and, and then it, I, I think sometimes then everything can come at once you know, maybe there just needs to be a point where the public is outraged just one more time 
and MPs in Westminster will find out, particularly with the new intake of younger MPs, that opinions have genuinely, generally and genuinely changed and that the numbers are there and that the voices are there and that this might happen um, in a, you know quite quick succession, partly because the legislation is already there. It's been drafted, it's been argued about, it's been tossed around the House of Lords and committees and all that sort of stuff. So it's not as if we don't have the words. It's just at the moment we don't have the will. What do you mean when you say that? I was, you know, one of the reasons we 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 embarked on this little journey was so that we could have these discussions because I don't think anyone holds the answers. You know, a lot of the arguments become quite technical. A lot of the arguments um, uh, are argued by, you know, like they were in the House of Lords, by people who were once lawyers or barristers, and um, but there is something bigger in here about about being kind to people who are suffering um, at a certain stage in their life and providing a, a choice. And in I can't think in any other sort of argument where you'd say that you have to make one group suffer to protect another. I Not particularly when you think we have sophisticated ways in all sorts of other walks of life where you can say we're going to protect that vulnerable group whilst also protecting this vulnerable group. Was there um, anything that you didn't ask, Sir Vince, that you wish you had? Um, well, you know, I wanted, I mean, I didn't want to bear my soul, but I did, I, I, um, I saw a psychologist recently, it's all part of the palliative care setup that, that is moving my way. And she wrote back that she thought I was um, uh, clinically depressed, as, which is the same position that his mum was in. And I was interested to, to, to just, I mean, chuck that in and say to him, does that mean that my opinion is um, of where and when I would like to stop my life um, should be questioned? Because I'm, you know, in theory, I'm suffering from depression. And I'd like to know what he what he thought about that. I mean, I don't it would have just have been a everything and nothing chat, but um, you're really getting into the detail. But um, that's a um, something I would like to talk about. Obviously, this person is an expert and I'm not. But what are they judging that against? Because surely you have to have a different scale that you're judging against if you're dealing with someone facing what you're facing. I don't know. But there is a number attached to it. So I think I read the number 29 somewhere, whatever that means. And um, um, so, so yes, who knows? But I I agree. I think your circumstances and your level of mood should, should be factored together. But and I don't know. Let's say, let's say one day um, it's not going to happen because you've talked about the timing never going to work. Let's say one day I wanted to, to make my case to say that life had um, uh, I'd done as much life as I could possibly do, and I wanted a high court judge to look at the evidence. If I if I had a note on my file saying I was depressed, would that would that make the judge think I was a less worthy candidate, or would, or would the judge think, well, yeah, you should be depressed, shouldn't you? I don't know. Anyway, I'm, maybe, maybe this stuff though we shouldn't make its way into the edit because we're, we're into way too, you know, sort of technical territory. But these are the sorts of things. I mean, they these are the sorts of things that don't really get discussed, and they are they are genuinely out there, and they they affect us. We are recording this episode just before Christmas and New Year. What have you got, Charlotte, for Christmas? I can't tell you that. There's four things, and there should be five. I'm, I'm there's always five things for Charlotte at Christmas, um, and um, yeah, that's 
they're, they're all currently state secrets. But the, <laughs> um, um, yeah, if we do something in the new year, I will, I will say. But they are, of course, a mixture of um, the very lavish, yeah, and the very mundane, yeah, and, and they're thrown out in an order, yeah, specifically to annoy her. Yeah, so, <laughs> so she'll get the mundane to start with. I mean, poor Charlotte. I mean, the long-suffering Charlotte. She'll get the mundane to start with, which I can tell you, actually, that's just a spatula because there's a broken spatula in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and then we're building up to a nice piece of jewellery. Yeah, so I have you know, the, the state secret is um, is is broken. <laughs> um, but, yeah, anyway. So, I don't know. Why, why, why do we torture our, 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 our most loved ones, Charlotte? It's amazing, and she does wonderful things. She really is great, um, and and so are my fantastic girls. Um, but yeah, I guess if we don't, I think about this. If we don't stay a little bit playful, then we then yeah, we're not ourselves, are we? Absolutely. Although having said that, I I definitely wouldn't want a spatula for Christmas. No, who Just... would? <laughs> nobody, nobody wants that. No, not at all. <laughs> On Christmas Day, you won't have carers in, so. It, will it be quite a tough day for Charlotte? Yeah, yes, it will, and that's you know that's that's the payoff for us to have a family day unencumbered. It means that Charlotte, who's you know she's the anchor person at Christmas anyway, and, and always would have been, is will then have to you know take me to the bathroom through the day, um, wash me, put me to bed, put the convene on, which is a horrendous contraption like a catheter type thing, wire me up through the night. And, and sleep next to me, which she can do, but, you know, she's, she will be then putting, you know, giving me a sleeping pill um, and then probably later in the night, night oral morphine and then later in the night um, some um, some other kind of um, lorazepam sort of stuff, all of which help with breathing and, and relaxing um, so that the ventilator can stay on. And, um, yeah, you know, so that gives her a really tough gig in in a... A life that is pretty tough for her anyway. Just keeping, keeping the um, the wheels on a, a family and and keeping an eye on me whilst having our, our girls to to try and bring up. She's doing an amazing job, and it, but it is kind of see it for her, and it's relentless. It really is relentless. Do you think about the the future and kind of plans for? For next year, do you have? I suppose you were saying life is quite. Sh- you can only think about stuff short term. Um, how far ahead do you think? I, you know, I still think quite a lot about how the various the small things I still have to do to close things off. So amidst the the um, difficulty of last year, Charlie and I went out to a a local sort of green burial site, and. We were given these sorts of there's this coordinates for I forget what the name of the plot was um, AG forty six and AG forty seven or something like that and uh, so we bounced around on my wheelchair to um, um, through the the green burial sort of meadows and uh, woods and found these little plots um, uh, where these little plots would be and I was wondering whether it would be a very difficult moment just kind of picking and. Uh, pointing at your own grave, I didn't find it hard at all. To be quite honest, there was a there was a little flock of uh, goldfinches in uh, the uh, long grass just next to me, and I thought, well, this is as good as anything; it'll do. And um, uh, if I can be food for goldfinches and and get this bit of admin done, 
by pointing in that pointing at this bit of ground and saying I want that one, then that'll be all right. And Charlotte felt the same, to be quite honest. So we we bought two, and um, the transaction was a bit like buying something on eBay, and um, that was it, job done. So, the, but that's on my kind of big list of things to do. So I've got two or three more things like that. They're on my big list, but yeah, I don't really have any future plans. Do you? I don't really know how to ask. Do you? Do you? Do you think you're still this time next year? Do you think you'll still be here? Possibly, and it's kind of back to what the question you asked me earlier. But I don't know in what state, and that troubles me. And whether I'll be here, sort of, um, almost against my wishes. Well, against my wishes, what my wishes would have been. So that's the tr- that's the tricky thing. I think it's quite possible. That the I had a big drop off in breathing and lungs, as we we talked about over the the summer this year maybe stabilizing in which case i will have more time where i can breathe on my own and i'm and i've lost a whole load of voice this year but it, i seem to be doing okay in these last couple of weeks so who knows um but it comes down to in answering to your question i might be here i'm really worried that if i am i'll be in a parlor state I don't know how I don't know how you're going to answer this one. It, it might be a challenge. Are there highlights of the last twelve months of 2021 that you can point to? Oh, we, I'll tell you what. This is just a, a little aside. Um, you know, it's pandemic year. It's been it's been disruptive for all of us. We had a um, sh- uh, Jessie, our youngest daughter, was going on an outward bound kind of um, course in the summer in Wales. But the day before, the person who was going to drive her, um, um, their, her daughter got um, COVID. So we were left with this situation where we were going to have to go to Wales. So we got up early the next day, put me in the wheelie van. And um, Charlotte, who hates driving long distances, had to drive six and a half hours to in, into the Welsh mountains, the Snowdonia, with me in the back of the van and with, with Jesse and Sasha. So we, we had between us, we, after having dropped um, Jesse off at her event, at her event for the week, um, we had 13 hours in the van where I didn't move. I was just, um, and they had to come in and administer help to me with, with with bottles, which is pretty unpleasant if I needed to relieve myself. And it was a horrendous day, but a kind of very scenic, sunny. Um, and we, st- we stopped at the worst service stations um, and the girls went in and got the worst, the worst snacks. And at one stage we found a, um, a place to have a sandwich in a um, in a large a large long um, layby somewhere on an A road in Wales with with some nice attractive views, and I was let out of the van, and I um, um, was enjoying myself eating a sandwich with a nice view, and the girls took a photograph of me, um, and we all we all kind of wept at it because I looked like the most forlorn and pathetic man on earth, um, sat at the foot of a Welsh mountain, um, and our day had been so. So awful and yet so fun. Um, that it kind of sticks out as an important day for what, you. What did you? What did I feel like? I need to see this photo. I looked like I'd been abandoned in a late by and just had nothing more than half a floppy sandwich in my hand, um, and somehow incongruously was at the foot of a Welsh mountain. And um, I did look like I'd been fly tipped, and um, so yeah, it was that. 
is that kind of thing where the, the girls were on their knees laughing about how funny, uh, just how out of place I looked. Please send me the photo. Oh, I can't, it's horrendous, it's awful. And I think, I think for one reason or another, for comfort or for something else, I was also kind of dressed like a clown. Presumably not with like a red wig. And a, a, that would just be cruel. With a really sad face and a tear. <laughs> In episode two of this podcast, we've got to know a little more about the topic of assisted dying in politics. Next time, we'll be looking at how the issue is playing out when it comes to the law. See you soon.